funny how? It'd be funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. Welcome to the Silver Screen video with your host, Jonathan, and your other host, Jacob. Jacob, how is it going today? Uh, it's good, man. I'm uh, excited to talk about Orson Welles. Yeah, that's about it. It's a Monday. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, well, thanks for dating the episode. Um... <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Are we not supposed to do that? Uh, no, that's okay. It's just like any other day of the week. As long as we don't mention it's like a holiday or something, it's fine. Okay. Um, so, uh, guys, as you can tell from Orson Welles being our director today, uh, we are continuing our journey of second part of directors. I don't really have uh, a good title for this revisit. Have you thought of one, Jacob? Um, uh, uh, God damn it. No, you're putting me on the spot here. Um, okay. Well, you failed. Okay, guys. Um, <laughs> Volume two, wanna... part two. Yeah, that one's just... I, I, we'll workshop it, guys. Okay. Um, episode 12 is when we did the first part of the late, great Orson Welles. We covered Citizen Kane, Magnificent Amberson's Touch of Evil, and Chimes at Midnight. Um, most of those were good. So, uh, I mean, Citizen Kane's a real, you know, it's flawed, but you look past it. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Jacob, tell the people what we're talking about this episode. Um, today, we are going to be talking about three movies. Uh, we're going to be talking about The Lady from Shanghai. We're going to be talking about The Trial and F for Fake. Now. The F for fake was really interesting because I believe I text you and I said, Hey, I haven't, I haven't got a chance to watch F is for fake. <laughs> so it just made me think of like, before I realized it was F for fake before I was thinking, why did he name this after like a Sesame street bit? <laughs> um, and then F for fake obviously is a much better title, even though there's only like a couple of words being exchanged, being changed. But, um, Anyway, it still has uh, a strong Sesame Street uh, energy, you know, just the title F for fake. Absolutely, it does. It's a good title, though. It really is. Uh, it's like, uh, what's the old movie Dial M for murder? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I just I like I like things like that. Um, so uh, anyway, yeah. So, guys, go back and listen to episode 12 if you have not. So you can uh, kind of get a get a feel for for how we view Orson Welles, obviously not through the lens of, yeah, obviously he's one of the greatest filmmakers in the history of cinema, but also like, uh, we also talk in that episode about how you're a huge fan of him, like mm -hmm. going back years. Um, so just give a quick, just re like kind of rerun that just like a, like a condensed version of like your view of Orson Welles. Cause you've been a fan for a long time and, and we actually just did like a quick thing on a um, on a Patreon episode where I ask you like three directors you would want to have dinner with that are alive. And Orson Welles like was the first one you came up with. Um, yeah. Uh, so. Patreon.com slash silver screen video uh, in case you want to hear the rest of that conversation. Um, oh, look at that inadvertent plug. <laughs> um, 
you know, I love Orson Welles. I mean, I, I love him almost as a person more than I do a filmmaker. Although I do think he is obviously very talented, but I mean, part, you know, part of the story of Orson Welles's career is one of frustrated ambition. You know, I mean, Citizen Kane is really, and that's why there's been so much mystique around Citizen Kane is because, you know, it was really the only movie um, where one of our most talented directors um, basically got to do whatever he wanted to do with, um, you know, a good studio budget, you know, and when you compare him to somebody like, um, you know, just two recent names that we've done, Alfred Hitchcock or Stanley Kubrick, I mean, both of those guys were operating with um, giant studio budgets um, basically throughout their entire career and could just do whatever the fuck they wanted to do. Orson Welles got that for exactly one movie and then, you know, basically got ran out of Hollywood um, and spent the rest of his career kind of, um, you know, I mean, it would take him, you know, seven years sometimes to make a movie just because he was trying to cobble together the funds from, you know, different places. And um, yeah, I don't know. I just really admire him. He, he, he was kind of a born storyteller, you know, um, who knows what any, if any of the stories he ever told were true um, about which more later, once we talk about F for fake, but like he, I mean, he, when he was a boy, apparently he went to Ireland and like lied his way across the country, you know, and became an actor and, um, you know, went, you know, this is back in the old days before fact checking was really a thing. And you could just go to a, you could just go to Ireland and be like, hello, I'm a famous Broadway actor. And they'd be like, okay, all right. Sounds good. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't know. He was a born entertainer, a born artist. Um, you know, he had the kind of sensibility of like taking um, high art and making it into popular entertainment. Um, a lot of his theatrical work in New York before he came to Hollywood was um, doing Shakespeare productions like Julius Caesar, but again, making them very, very popular. I mean, his uh, apparently he did a production of Julius Caesar that got a a 10 minute standing ovation. People were just so overwhelmed by how good it was and how powerful it was. I don't know. The man was a, a combination between uh, Leonardo da Vinci and PT Barnum, you know, like he was a showman, but also an artist that, that kind of frustrated uh, ambition and frustrated um, greatness, you know, is something that really appeals to me. I don't know. I love the guy. I I love Orson Welles, even if um, a lot of his his works are truncated, flawed. Yeah, we'll never see his his true vision on a lot of his movies. But um, yeah, I I don't know. I think he's great. I think he's, you know, when I talk about Hitchcock and Kubrick, about being, you know, kind of master technicians that, you know, don't seem very warm or, you know, not the kind of people you would want to hang out with. I think Orson Welles is the exact opposite. Um, he's like a Tarantino guy. I feel like he's, you know, very, um, gregarious and he literally spent like the last, I was going to say last half of his career, but the last 60% of his career, just going around Europe, just telling stories to people, you know, um, and they, you know, and, and gallivanting around with rich people and being their kind of court jester almost, um, I don't know. He's a fascinating figure. I love the guy. I don't know what else to say. Well, I mean, he, he, he's very fascinating. Like when you look at 
he made Citizen Kane at such a young age that mm. obviously um, this is this is like something that that gets talked about a lot. It, it was kind of his cross to bear in terms of like it wasn't you would think, oh, this is the greatest, like arguably the greatest American film ever made. But in a way, it it really was more of a curse. I think it was Ebert that said um, he is the man. Yeah, I, I looked it up to make sure I was getting it right. He was a man who made the greatest film ever made and was never forgiven for it. Mm, yeah. And I, and I thought that was interesting. And, and I read that when I was reading the review that he wrote for the trial back in uh, 2000, because the trial is a movie that um, Orson Welles thought very highly of. And, right. and he said, honestly, this might, this is the greatest movie I've ever made. Mm-hmm. And Ebert thought very highly of it as well. So I thought that was really interesting. I didn't know that till after I watched it. And I was impressed with it. I really enjoyed it. He did a lot of unique things with it. Um, but uh, we can we can get to the trial because uh, if we're going to go in chronological order, do you want to talk about Lady from Shanghai first? Yeah, let's just talk about Lady from Shanghai first. I mean, yeah, that, that whole thing with Kane is, is such that's such a good Ebert quote. And it's, you know, I mean, it's it's true. Like the guy the guy made a movie that wasn't a spectacular hit, but it was, it was well received, right? Like critics um, uh, were interested in it. And uh, particularly um, one of my favorite stories is that uh, Citizen Kane was kind of passed around at like Hollywood parties before it was actually released. And so the influence of Citizen Kane actually began to be felt David Bordwell writes a lot about this. The influence of Citizen Kane actually began to be felt before it was even released because like John Huston watched watched it at like somebody's Hollywood party and was like, uh, okay, we need to hire Greg Toland, the cinematographer of Citizen Kane ASAP, you know, for X movie or whatever, you know. So this was this was a movie that was really well received. You know, maybe a little bit of a financial failure, but just his hubris and his um, I'm going to do whatever I want on this picture and his um, I guess hubris and his ego, you know, um, maybe a modern figure that we would think of as someone like Kanye West, his kind of persona, you know, he knows he's great, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it just, it just ruined the rest of his fucking career. They never let him do what he wanted to ever again. He made Magnificent Ambersons. It was severely cut down, which is an absolute tragedy. And that movie is still fucking good, even after they cut it down. And that's kind of what happened similarly to Lady from Shanghai. Um, I don't know. I just want to tell the origin story of this movie a little bit. The origin story of Lady from Shanghai is um, he was doing uh, he was doing a uh, musical of Around the World in 80 Days like a theatrical musical, not a film. And he needed $55,000 to get it uh, completed. Now, this is a guy who 10 years earlier was Broadway's young star, you know, and um, he couldn't get the last $55,000 to finish this, this musical he was making. So, I mean, you can tell his career had fallen off a little bit, even, you know, seven years after Citizen Kane. But, uh, he calls uh, Harry Cohn, the guy in charge of. Uh, God damn it! Who is Harry Cohn? Is it Warner Brothers? Um, sure. 
I don't, I don't know, but let's go with Warner Brothers. Wait, hold on. I'm going to look this up really quick. Harry Cohn. Um, We're doing a live lookup, guys. So, uh, Oh, Columbia. That's what it was. Columbia Pictures. That's what um, I was thinking, too. Yeah, Columbia Pictures. Um, so, so yeah, he called um, Harry Cohn and asked him uh, for money. And he Harry Cohn was like, sure, um, but, you know, I'm a businessman. You have to agree to adapt and direct a movie for me and i'll give you the fifty five thousand dollars now and then of course you won't get paid for the director's work (laughs) and so orson welles was like sure i don't care whatever and to hear orson welles tell it uh harry cohen was like all right what's the name of the book that you're working on and and that you're going to adapt i want it in writing you know before i give you the money and to hear orson welles tell it he just looked at his bedside table and saw this book um, that the lady from Shanghai was based on and just said it without ever having read it. But I think the true story is that Orson Welles and a friend of his, a collaborator, were planning on making a movie or trying to make a movie based on this book. And Orson Welles used this as an opportunity to to get the lady from Shanghai made. So they made it. Um, and basically Orson Welles treated this like it was his own Citizen Kane. And th- this is similar to the work that he did on, um, The Stranger, which is a great, a great, um, Orson Welles movie. And also, uh, with Edward G. Robinson and also on Magnificent Ambersons, where during the filming, he basically did what he wanted to do. And afterwards the studios began to fuck with it. And that's exactly what happened from Lady from Shanghai. Apparently there was an hour that was cut out. This is, a, this is a crisp 90 minutes, and apparently there was an hour that was cut out. There was all kinds of kind of Citizen Kane type stuff, these long takes and these um, kind of uh, brilliant, you know, set pieces and stuff that just didn't make it into the final movie because Harry Cohn, A, recut it and then also made him reshoot it because there weren't very many close-ups of Rita Hayworth in the in the movie. And Harry Cohn was like, we're not releasing a Rita Hayworth movie without ample close-ups of her. Like, that's just not, we're not doing it. And so they even had to go reshoot some stuff. Um, So what we're left with is kind of a tight 90-minute B picture, uh, a noir with Orson Welles and Rita Hayworth that is truncated and it's cut up and it's not nearly anywhere close well i shouldn't say anywhere close it's not nearly what his original kind of epic vision was but it's still fucking good you know so yeah i don't know had you ever seen this before what we watched it i had never seen it before and i thoroughly enjoyed it now i I honestly now that i know that backstory i don't know like this movie flow i thought it flowed pretty well it hit all the notes of of a noir it it was like you said as a tight 90 nothing really like maybe you could have done a little more like towards the end of the first act when the husband gets introduced maybe there could have been a little more like before orson wells goes from the bar to the boat Mm -hmm. like maybe there could have been more story there but honestly i thought it flowed pretty well um i don't know how adding more time into this like even if you add it not not even an hour even if you add 30 minutes like do you know anything about what was cut i mean because i honestly i think it would kind of fuck up the flow of what we have 
Well, I think the, um, you know, and I should say that hour was a rough cut, right? It's not like Orson Welles was like, I want you to release a two and a half hour movie. You know, more likely okay. it, would have been, okay. it would have been 210 or maybe even two hour. I mean, who knows? But the point is that he didn't, he didn't get to choose. Um, the, the rough cut, you know, the kind of first cut of it was two and a half hours. And I know that there was, the, I, I think the plot would make sense, um, which it currently doesn't. You know, not which really. Is, <laughs> which is fine for a film noir you know a lot of a lot of um a lot of film noirs the plot really doesn't make any sense and that's you know you're not watching them uh to really figure out the plot which is um but also uh the set pieces right the 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 carnival uh scene at the very end um lasts about five minutes of screen time and the original uh, the original uh, cut of that was like 20 minutes, right? So it was them basically chasing Orson Welles through this abandoned amusement park or a sh- or shuttered amusement park. Um, and instead of just like him going into the fun house or whatever and then waking up there, um, he actually, like it becomes like a set piece. Like they're following him around and he's going in all these different buildings and hiding in these rides and stuff. So that that would have been like a more elaborate um, set piece. And also the um, uh, th- there's like kind of a uh, a shootout or like a confrontation when when the guy is saying uh, when the one guy is is telling him his first like plan to do suicide like that was kind of like a big chase scene uh, through like the hilltops of Italy and stuff or not Italy um, wherever they were in South America and. Um, so yeah, like th- there was some additional set pieces and stuff, and I think the plot would have made more sense. So like, I'm not sure it was like, you know, I mean, one thing, and, and I, I want to talk about this a little bit too. You know, Orson Welles, there are some characteristics of his movies. One of them is they are never slow. They are never ponderous and slow. It was something that Orson Welles absolutely hated. Um, he was always trying to make things faster, and you know, never letting the audience get bored. So. I don't think it would have, I just think it would have been a different movie, right? It would have been more of an epic, more of a, of a crime epic as opposed to a quick B picture, you know? Yeah. I mean, honestly, it doesn't even matter. Like like you said earlier, it doesn't even matter if the, if the plot doesn't necessarily make a ton of sense because you get everything you need. Everything for a fun noir is there. You've got your voiceover, you've got your relationship, you've got your double cross and it's all smooth. Like, I would say the biggest thing that kind of comes under question in this movie is his accent. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But aside from that, I loved it, dude. I love the opening scene, man. When he's when, when you've got the narration and then he he gives her a cigarette and she's like, I don't smoke. And he's like, hey, you want a cigarette? And, you know, it's my last one. Like I just I immediately was into the was into like their chemistry. I thought yeah. it worked well. Um, well, I and, mean, and also great character actors, dude. I mean, oh, just yeah. Glenn Anders, man, just the way he delivers his lines and then he'll deliver the same line and he doesn't miss a beat with, right. with how, without he's pronounced like pronouncing this, how he's enunciating his words. It's, uh, it's fucking awesome. Is that the target practice guy? Yeah, dude. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> target practice. And yeah, then. Yeah. And dude, then then when 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 Orson Welles when they run out, they're like, "What's going on?" And he was like, "He says it back the way he was told." Yeah, yeah, like yeah. He yeah. Sa- he 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 carries out the target. It was oh, it's so fucking awesome. 
Yeah, and um, Everett Sloan as the uh, you know who of course is also in Citizen Kane. Oh yeah, it's Bannister. Yeah, yeah it's Bannister. It's really, really great, man. I mean, he he's just kind of spidery and slithery, you know. Like, I, I think it's an example of like that old style Hollywood performance where, like, like nowadays. I mean, this is gonna make me sound like an old, you know, like an old fuddy dud or whatever. But like, you know, nowadays actors are doing a lot, you know, <laughs> like, like they they really do everything they can to be like. like Christian Bale will be like, I, I almost starved to death to making this movie or whatever. And it's like Everett Sloan, you know, is kind of a, a man Friday in Citizen Kane, you know, kind of a, a, a simp, not simpering, but just kind of an, a loyal assistant, you know, is kind of like his role and, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, subservient, you know, that kind of thing. And in this role, he is like, uh, he's just like imperious, you know, and he's like slithery and he's walking around on those crutches. Like he's some kind of spider. And it's, um, I don't know, man, it's just, it's just really, really fucking good. And he's not doing that much different. Right. I mean, he is obviously, but like, you know, he, he's obviously dedicated to his craft, but it's just the way that those like old Hollywood actors could just be like, Oh yeah. Okay. I'm still like, I'll uh I'll just adjust my I'll I'll bring this down ten percent, bring this up five percent, and you know do this and do this, and then that'll be good. You know, it wasn't like this big dramatic shift in tone or like they gave him a big you know they gave him a different look in makeup or whatever. I don't know. It's just I really admire that kind of like old um, acting craft that some of those old character actors had. You know. I do. I agree. And and the end, man, when when he's talking to him and he's like, I'm going to make sure that you don't get the death penalty so I can come see you. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then as soon as he takes the pills, like I just I loved the wrap up. I love when Orson Welles shows up to save Bannister. But then like he's obviously the one who who has orchestrated it. And obviously then you find out it's obviously the woman. But either way, I, lo I love it, dude. It was a really just fun like very quick noir. I thought it was very effective. Um, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean the, the, the chase through the, the hall of mirrors and all that. And um, I mean, just to point out some, some, some basic thing. I mean, yeah, the accent is hilarious. Um, my, my favorite thing about the accent is like knowing something about Orson Welles and his ego and his hubris. Like he thought he could pull this off or he thought he was pulling it off. Like, I just imagine him like watching the dailies of this movie and being like, man, I'm fucking nailing this accent. Like, because <laughs> it is so like it, it veers from not doing an accent at all to like a Lucky Charms leprechaun style accent. And it's just uh, it's just great. It, it's just hilarious. Um, I uh, I also love Rita Hayworth, man. Yeah, like, she's she's so fucking good, dude. Like she was so good in this movie. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, he did kind of an untraditional thing with her, which angered him, angered uh, Harry Cohn. He, you know, had her cut her hair and dyed it blonde, which was, you know, not what Rita Hayworth looked like in her most iconic roles. And Orson Welles also, um, I want to I want to talk about, you know, some of the characteristics of his movies, right? Uh, Fast is obviously one of them. 
um, a lot of dialogue, but a lot of like kind of overlapping, like fast dialogue, you know, um, a modern equivalent would be, <laughs> would be like an Aaron Sorkin or a Joss Whedon, but the difference is they're not, they're not saying anything stupid. They're, they're just, it's just like rapid fire overlapping dialogue. Um, well, I mean, well, well, let's, let's use this let's use this thought and this conversation to steer us into the trial because the trial has a lot of that. Like the trial it has, like that's, that's one reason I loved it. There is so much going on in the trial, but, but the reason I love it is because you're getting these questions and these answers and this, and, and not really answers. I should say you're getting questions and a lot of back and forth and a lot's going on, but nothing's going on. Right. Like it's very surreal. It's very like just constant bam, bam, bam with no real development because you never know what's going on. And that that's one reason I loved it. But uh, but yeah, let's let's go with with what you're saying. And and I think it's very applicable to uh, to the trial. Yeah, sure. Um, wait, let me wrap up a little because I have less to say about these last. Two. I just want to wrap up a couple of. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can go from hard, Shanghai yeah, whatever bits, you want um, really quick, because, um, you know, we're talking about the, the the recurring themes in his movies and like what what is part of an Orson Welles movie. And I think this will recur. Um, well, this won't really recur in the trial or effort fake, but it, ha- it it exists in Citizen Kane, Magnificent Ambersons, Chimes at Midnight. Um this idea of kind of decay, right? Like a decaying greatness. Like I love that scene on the beach whenever um, uh, Orson Welles is just like, is this all you people do? Like you, you, like you just kind of, you just like sit around and just like shoot the shit with each other. Like he's kind of disgusted by it. And um, Uh, yeah, that was a great scene because then, then Bannister tells Grisby, like it may be the only time you referred to as a shark. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, like he says, yeah, is this all you people do is just like sit around and insult each other? Like, what is it like, you know, kind of making fun or, or, or getting angry at this like idle rich, you know, um, you know, kind of this decay, you know. Um, but there's also a really, really important thematic element here, which is that uh, Rita Hayworth was Rita Hayworth and Orson Welles were together at the time. I don't, I don't, I don't know if they were married. I think they were actually. And this movie was kind of, um, the beginning of the end for them. I think they divorced like a few months after filming ended, um, or a few months after the movie was released. Um, either way, but you know, in the movie you have Rita Hayworth's character who is enmeshed in this like life of the idle rich, you know, with, uh, Everett Sloan and, Orson Welles's character is kind of trying to pull her out of that, you know, trying to pull her. You know, it, it's a pr- pretty familiar film noir plot line, you know, trying to get the gangster's wife, you know, out of the gangster lifestyle. And Orson Welles is trying to pull her from this life of just rich, dick, grandiose decay and, you know, bring her to him and obviously be with her. He's in love with her. And that is you know, Orson Welles had a really, really great talent for like making um, movies about things that were going on in his life, you know, and that's exactly what was going on in his life. You know, Orson Welles saw Rita Hayworth as someone who was enmeshed in the Hollywood studio system, which is obviously a, a great, you know, metaphor for grandiose decay. And Rita Hayworth was, um, 
you know, she was, people don't know this about her. She was like a fiery Latina, like woman. Um, and they literally like plastic surgery in those days was literally like shaving down the bones in her face. Um, and they dyed her hair and they completely like remade her look. She had an accent, uh, that they, uh, made her work on and stuff. I mean, she was literally a creation of the studio system. Right. And Orson Welles was, you know, saw himself as this lone artist who was like trying to like pull her out and be like, no, like, don't be Harry Cohn's muse, you know, in this product of the studio system, come be my artistic muse. Right. Let me write roles for you. You know, this kind of, um, romantic artist muse relationship. And he ended up failing in that. Right. She ended up leaving him. She, of course, stayed in the Hollywood studio system. Um, and so, so this, there's some really, really deep thematics here, uh, going on in this movie. And it explains why, um, you know, cause he made a movie called the stranger that was also like a blueprint film noir, very, very simple, tight 90 minutes. But this one, he didn't want it to be that way. He wanted this to be kind of an epic, tragic love story that was also a noir. And I think that's one of the reasons why is because, um, you know, this was a personal story to him. This was a personal tale, um, which is, you know, I don't know. And the whole thing is very interesting to me. Well, I think I think it always makes the makes whatever art. You know, we talked about this a lot with on our Cameron episode um, a couple of weeks ago when we were discussing like Cameron going through a divorce when he did this and camera Cameron being single when he did this or whatever and how it kind of reflected in his art. And I think yeah. that all, that matters. I think that matters a lot when you're, when you're talking about someone making, putting something on screen and writing and, and filming, because there is no way it's like, it's impossible for, for it not to bleed over. And sometimes right. those results make whatever the property is all the more like deep yeah, and, and easier to just kind of be reflective on, on his real life. So no, I, I love that. It's good information. Yeah, and it's um and Orson Welles has the unique ability to um even if he doesn't have full control of something and they do cut an hour left from your movie, that shit is still in the movie, right? He he almost has this like supernatural ability to make something and there's so much of his artistic vision in the thing that someone can literally cut off uh, an hour or they can change the ending like they did in Magnificent Ambersons. Um, and it still comes off like an Orson Welles movie, you know, like even the third man and Carol Reed, like other Carol Reed movies don't look like the third man. And there's probably a reason for that. It's because fucking Orson Welles was on set when he was making the third man, right? Like almost directing the movie by proxy. At least that's the, you know, that's kind of like an urban legend. Um, but yeah, it's like it's like he has this supernatural talent to override even, um, you know, Harry Cohn being like, this is a disaster. We're going to cut an hour of it. You know, um, it's really incredible. But anyways, we, we've talked enough about it. We can move on to the trial. Well, the trial I'm very interested about because you didn't seem when I told you how highly I thought of it, you seemed very underwhelmed. Um, but before before we get to that, let's just say real quick, um, the trial is. It's a very uh, ambiguous movie. I guess that's one word. Mm-hmm. Um, this this guy is is accused of something. 
and he stands trial, but we never know what he's accused of. He asks questions and doesn't get answers. There is just, you know, it's based on a book by Franz Kafka, and uh, you can tell. <laughs> so, uh, um, what what are your thoughts on the trial? Because Ebert considers it a masterpiece. Orson Welles says it's one of his, you know, it's, it's probably his best movie. Um, but I don't know. This is where it's interesting because I don't know if Wells thinks that because he was so tired of talking about Citizen Kane right. because that's all he ever got. Or did he think that in a serious way? Because like from what I've read, the day they wrapped, he said, this is the greatest film I've ever made. So what, what do you what do you think about it? You know, I I think this is lesser Wells. You know, I really do. Uh, but I do think it's a great movie. But it's. um you know, I one of the reasons I think Orson Welles liked this movie a lot, and I do think it is a great movie. And we should mention it just he was approached by an international uh, producer who was like, um, I want to make a movie about something in the public domain that I don't have to pay for the rights of. And Orson Welles was like, cool, let's do the trial. And uh, it turns out the trial wasn't in the public domain, so they ended up having to pay for the rights <laughs> for it anyways. Um, but uh, you know, we talked about uh, this is why I think this is Lesser Wells, because we talked about the thing that the thing that, that uh, 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 a theme that it, that runs through Orson Welles's work, which is failed grandiosity. Right. A- epic, uh, epic, grand failure. Right. Uh, it's in Citizen Kane. Right. Uh, or, uh, Charles Foster Kane fails spectacularly. Right. The decay of this once grand man who had all these ambitions and dreams and hopes and it just all crumbles around him and he's decaying in his tomb in Xanadu. Magnificent Ambersons. It's in that. Right. Uh, Because it but it's a family instead of a man, you know, Um, and it's it's really even more interesting because this happened to Orson Welles. Right. He became Charles Foster Kane. Right. He became one of the Ambersons, you know, kind of a, a failed artist who um, never forgot to remind everybody of his former greatness, you know, and that's not really in this movie. Right. That's not really in this movie at all. This is this is Orson Welles as uh, an outward facing artist. Right. He's not he's not dwelling on kind of the personal things oh uh, I, I forgot chimes at midnight i mean jesus christ fucking falstaff i mean if that's not tragic greatness i mean i don't know what is um and so the trial doesn't have any of that it's him as an outward facing artist he, he's trying to do do right by kafka you know um this is similar to his shakespeare adaptations um especially othello which is fucking great where he's trying to do justice to the to the source material and trying to, you know, trying to adapt the source material for, you know, modern mass audiences, in this case, movie audience. Um, and I think he does a great job. I think this is a great Kafka adaptation. I don't think anybody's ever done a Kafka adaptation uh, better than this. And it's great. I, you know, it's a great movie, but it because it doesn't have that personal element to it, it's always something that I'm going to see as lesser wells, if that makes sense. Well, it 
it makes sense from how you're explaining it, but it doesn't make sense to me from like, cause I don't think this is lesser Wells. I mean, citizen Kane is technically like it's, it's a, it's a massive technical achievement. Like, mm. so when we say it's the greatest American movie, I don't necessarily know if I agree with that, but also since movies are basically someone telling a story from a technical standpoint, Citizen Kane is fantastic. From from a story standpoint, I do not think it's anywhere close to like the greatest story told in an American film, if that makes sure. sense. If that sure. so so with the trial, I feel like it's a it's a very it's a technical achievement. There's a lot of colors, a lot of shadows, a lot of interesting camera angles. There's a ton of shit that he did like so so I watched it without knowing anything about it, because I typically don't, if, if it's a movie I've never seen, I typically don't look it up. So I watched it, and I'm like, man, this feels like a fucking nightmare. Mm-hmm. Like, it feels like a bad dream. Anthony Perkins wakes up. There's two guys in his, in his room. They're obviously uh, supposed to be cops or something. They're not answering any of his questions. He's getting zero, like, he has zero information. And... Obviously, a lot more shit happens. A lot of it feels surreal. Sometimes rooms will open up into into like you know these massive halls and and bizarre shits happening. But then I I read Ebert's review, and Re- Ebert talked about how like yeah it, it feels like a nightmare, and and he taught I didn't know this either. Basically, I, I a lot of people assumed Anthony Perkins was gay, mm-hmm. but he kept it private. Yeah. Um. So allegedly, he told, um, Orson Welles that he was gay, and Orson kind of used it in the movie as like another level of like, he's keeping us on the edge of our seats in terms of when is he going to get exposed, mm-hmm. like when are we going to be exposed to what he's done, and I thought once I read that I really thought it added a new layer to the film because I I kept waiting for that. The whole time I kept waiting for the shoe to drop and like us to find out that this guy has done something terrible. Um, but, uh, it never happened. You never get any answers. Right. And, and that's obviously part part of Kafka in general is like mm-hmm. ambiguity and you never get answers, blah, blah, blah. Like if people have heard Kafka ask the term or, or any of that. You're probably familiar with it. Um, but, uh, it just, it, to me, it was great, man. There's a lot of eerie setting, in this movie, a lot of like eerie set pieces in terms of what's going on. He's being chased by, by these women that he clearly wants nothing to do with. Um, it's just a very unsettling movie and I love it. I love the shadows. I love the, I, like I said, I love those camera angles and, uh, the lighting or lack thereof on a lot of things. And, uh, I honestly think this is a technical achievement. I do think this is like, when I think of like big, either big Orson Welles or like Orson Welles who takes chances and like reinvents what you can do as a director. Um, I, I love it. I, I, I really thought it was fantastic looking at it from those terms. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I do think it's a great movie. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's um, I mean, the, the confusion and the dialogue, you know, something you pointed out, the dialogue, the kind of rapid fire dialogue and the um yeah the technical achievement it it is it is incredible um and the kind of um uh vision you know to be able to you know and that's something orson welles could do in his sleep right is you know what is this 
the feeling that I get when I read Kafka, what does this look like? You know, boom, you know, yeah. Wells was, was, a, was obviously a genius. He could do that in his sleep. It was almost second nature to him. And, um, you know, Anthony Perkins, you know, he was really, really proud of this role. Uh, he, he was really, um, uh, proud of himself and proud that he was the lead role in an Orson Welles movie. This is something that meant a lot to him, you know, to be able to, uh, carry this, um, this movie. And he does, he, he's, he's, there's no, I mean, he's fantastic. I mean, he's, um, confused and he's also kind of an asshole, you know? Well, that's the thing. He has so many tonal shifts that I feel like not very many people could have pulled off. Mm -hmm. Like he, he switches from like an asshole to vulnerable to in, like like insecure and like they're gonna find out because they're they're making him paranoid, but there's nothing for him to be paranoid about from what we're seeing, right. and he switches those tones and those emotions from scene to scene so well. I, it was a brilliant performance. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it it is it, it's a great performance and it's a great movie. You know, I mean, there's no there's no arguing that at all. It's a great Kafka adaptation. Um, you know, some of the set pieces and some of the, like you said, the, the, the design and the camera work and the, um, it's dizzying, you know, how impressive this is. I feel like we watched something recently that was, that reminded me of this. I don't know. Oh, um, I watched that, that movie uh, Possession that I was thinking about. And that kind of, it's got that same kind of surrealist tone where it's like, there's nothing actually crazy going on, but it certainly feels like there is, you know, um, yeah, yeah, that's why it feels like a bad dream. Like yeah. it really does from start to finish. Like, because you're watching it and it's a movie. Nothing bad can happen to you because it's a fucking movie. Just like mm -hmm. nothing bad can happen because it's just a dream. But there's still something there. Like there's like this, like the dagger above your head just waiting to fall. And mm -hmm. this movie makes you feel that way. And the ending, the the wrap up of this film is fucking insane. Um, yeah, yeah, which he changed uh, from the novel. Um, yeah, a lot, apparently from what I've read, um, like it was a little more on the nose than Kafka would have, Kafka would have ever been. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, and yeah. plus, I mean, you know, it was written, um, let's just say the movie was, uh, the, the, the novel was written before a certain historical event, uh, that would, that would have made this ending possible. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's something else too. But I mean, I think it's a great choice. I, I really, really do. It's, um, uh, you know, because the movie does have a post post-war energy, you know, a post-World War II, um, you know, uh, energy as opposed to, you know, Kafka was writing about, you know, Weimar Germany essentially. Um, but uh, I'm glad you like this movie. I really am. I was, I, I was kind of worried about it because I was watching um, that's something else we should just mention briefly. I was watching it on the uh, the Roku channel, which um, is sadly the only place you can really uh, stream this. And it looks like shit. And I was just like, oh, my God, Jonathan's going to hate this. But I'm glad you liked it because it's um, it's very unique and it's very, uh, very different. And the, the fucking print of it that exists is absolute dog shit. Um, I don't know. Criterion needs to restore this or something. I mean, this is. You know, regardless of my own personal feelings, this is an Orson Welles classic. Like, what are we doing here? You know, let's, let's restore this well, bad boy. I loved it because I felt like I was watching it on a VCR. I mean, <laughs> like, I really did. Like, yeah, the quality wasn't that great. Like, I can only imagine how much better it would have looked 
if you are watching it under like good quality in terms, because then you really get yeah the lighting that he was using and the shadows and, and you get all of that a little more full force. Yeah. Um, but I mean, yeah, no, I loved, it. I loved the, I loved the quality. I had no problem with it. Um, yeah, it's a classic. I mean, you know, if you're out there and you're, you, you're an Orson Welles fan, watch it. It's, um, I, you know, it, it's just a personal taste thing with me. It really is. You know, when I, this is probably the least favorite uh, movie. Well, no, I would say definitely this is the least favorite of all the Orson Welles movies we've watched from last episode to this episode. I would put this on par with um, with Othello, right? It, like that, I, I brought that up earlier. Like it's a similar situation. Like Orson Welles's trial adaptation and then uh, and Shakespeare adaptation is fucking incredible, uh, but it just doesn't have that same you know, that same thematic imagery that, that is one of the reasons why I love him so much, but it, it's a great movie. There's no denying that. Um, I, I want to read a little thing from, from Ebert. Cause I, cause you know, much more about obviously significantly more about, um, Orson Welles personal life. So, uh, Ebert said something interesting. He said, there is another way of looking at the trial and that is to see it as an, as autobiographical. And he said, after seeing Citizen Kane in 1941 and the magnificent Amberson since 42, a masterpiece with this ending hacked to pieces by the studios, Wells seldom found the freedom to make films when and how he desired. His life became a wandering one from place to place. Beautiful women rotated in his beds. He was reduced to a supplicant who begged financing from wealthy but maddening men. And he was never really able to find out what crime he'd committed that made him unbankable in Hollywood. And I thought that's really oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. That's a really interesting way to look at it because it's clear that this man in the movie that, that, uh, that Perkins plays, he's being punished and pursued for something. And it's kind of like the old thing of in a movie, there's nothing to me, there's nothing scarier like from a realistic perspective than like a situation where you know something is happening, but you can't prove it. So everyone just thinks you're crazy. Mm-hmm. Like to me, that's frightening. That's how, it's like unsane, the Soderbergh movie. Yeah. Um, I, that, that shit's terrifying. So this movie on a different level is like that because this man is being chased and persecuted and th- he doesn't get any answers. Mm-hmm. So it's like, why am I being punished? Like what, what is going on? And, and I, and I thought when you apply that to Orson Welles personal life, I thought that was very, uh, that's a very good comparison. You know, that's fascinating. I've never thought about it like that. I mean, that w- one thing occurs to me, which I guess I've never read um, Ebert's essay on this movie, which I need to remedy um, ASAP, but um, that's uh I've never looked at it through those lens. I'm going to be honest. I, I need to rewatch it now and kind of be thinking about it on those terms because that, um, you know, it, that, that, that might definitely add some, uh, some resonance uh, to me in particular, just cause I love Orson Welles. Um, yeah, no, that's fascinating. And that, that is terrifying. I mean, that's the old Hitchcock thing, right? Begin with a wrongly accused man, you know? Uh, oh yeah. This just takes it like, to a whole new fucking level. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. It's like metaphysical at this point. Like the entire world is like, you know, you've done something wrong, and you're like, you know, yeah. It's terrifying. Um, Are we? Yeah. Uh, we're ready to move on to F for fake. Yeah, let's do it, man. Let's do it. So uh, I didn't know this was a documentary when I put it on. 
So uh, that was that was an interesting uh, thing to find out. I uh, it's a documentary about fraud and fakery, mm-hmm. and and essentially they 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 go through quite a few things. But you know, I didn't care for this. You know, I I, I didn't like. I didn't think it was great. It was good, but like I told you off pod, I feel like what's great about this outside of it is what it introduces. Okay. Like there's a great line, like the idea it introduces, I should say. There's a great line where he's like, if it looks just like the real one, then why does it matter? Right. Like talking about a painting. And it's like when you start looking at Hollywood, when you start looking at filmmaking and storytelling, it's all fake. Like all of it is set up to deceive us. Right. And when you do your job well, you've deceived your audience well. And uh, I, I love that aspect of it. And I love the, the, the thought that they bring up about painting and about forgery and, and making copies. And, and just those ideas are just really interesting to me simply because it's crazy to me that you have two identical paintings and very few people on the planet can tell the difference, mm-hmm. but one of them is worth half a million. And one of them is worth the paper and canvas. Right. I just find, I find the entire concept interesting. Yeah. And it's like, if the, if the point is, you know, the kind of base pleasure that you get from looking at it, well then, then it, that it really doesn't matter, you know, like. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, well, let's talk about the ideas first, since you brought that up, the kind of ideas behind this. And then I think talking about the form would be um, would be uh, interesting to move into. But yeah, I mean, you know, these are these are questions that that Orson Welles um, is interested in throughout his career. Um, and he finally finds, you know, a cinematic form as a way to express them. It's a documentary slash film essay, which um you know, the difference between those two might, I don't know, might be uh, kind of uh, like a distinction without a difference. But well, I mean, um, I think there's definitely a tonal difference and there's most definitely a delivery, uh, a, a delivery of information difference for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know. I think he, he's bringing up a lot of interesting points. Here. I mean, he talks about the art forgery and all art is a lie. Um, and then he's also talking about the biography, the kind of uh, biography of uh, Howard Hughes, which has a lot of disinformation in it. And then, you know, he obviously makes up the story at the end about Picasso and all that. Um, which was great, by the way. You yeah. hear this whole story. It's, yeah. it's fantastic. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. And he, he kind of turns the lens on himself, you know, a little bit. And it's like, um, you know, art is a lie that helps us see the truth is a quote that he keeps going back to. and. You know, it, it it's you know the content. You know, I'm I'm sure the content has been um, has been done and thought about many times before. But it's um, it, it's it's interesting to bring up, right? I mean, you know, when we talk about like storytelling, right? This is a this is a lie from the beginning. You know, this is the if you're if you're reducing um, the human experience to the telling of a story, it's you're not telling the whole of the human experience. Now, obviously you're not able to, you know, because it's, it's too complicated, but um, I don't know. It's fascinating. I mean, he's just kind of ruminating on, on on these different questions and um, 
yeah, I don't know. Were there any other particular um, little insights or ideas that, that that stood out to you? Because that that one about the <laughs> the exact copy, I don't know the answer to that one, man. Like, why is this well, one more valuable than this one? And it's like because it's the original, I guess. But like because it's the original, why does it mean it's more valuable now that there's two? You know, like I don't, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer. You know. I mean, it's there. There's a couple of different ways. Like, for one, when I was digging this movie, like it was be, it was from a vibes perspective when he was just hanging out drinking with these dudes, mm-hmm. like just telling stories and laughing. I love that aspect. But I'll tell you, most of my, most of my, uh, like my thought process and my mental energy went into those ideas more so than the actual movie, mm-hmm. because the actual film, I just didn't there wasn't like I, I i enjoyed the beginning that was cool when he was doing the magic for the kid and there's a there's a few other interesting i guess things but primarily i love the idea it introduces i think this is a very it's a very interesting like film documentary whatever you want to call it to get from someone who single-handedly changed the face of filmmaking forever right right I mean, it, it it was almost like an accidental summation of his career to an extent. Yeah, yeah. Um, and 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 that's what I really enjoy because he does ask these questions that that have no answer. Yeah. If you were to if you were to gift me a Picasso painting or whatever, and and it's it's beautiful, like it's a, say it's my favorite painting, like I'm not going to take it and get it. And if I take it and get it checked out and they're like, Oh, this is a fake. Um, you know, you can buy them on this website for like 300 bucks or something, 500 bucks. I'm not going to be like heartbroken, you know, Mm -hmm. like, and I know that's very anecdotal, but I'm just using that as like a launch pad for like, I I don't know why like one existing while the other one exists, uh, devalues it, demeans it. If you're looking at it, for aesthetic pleasure because it makes you feel a certain way then why do these why do like the rest of like this outside influence why does it even matter and i think it's just it's just very i love it man especially when you look at it like we both love film we're obsessed with 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 the store the art of storytelling from a cinematic form and um and this it just kind of lets you know like yeah this this is it's all fake it's all pretend but we love it in spite of that right so why does one medium get changed while the other one gets embraced like why is one um punished or or however you want to say it while the other one's embraced it's just really interesting i don't know yeah i mean you know i think the chief charm of this movie for me is that you know because yeah it does start out as a documentary but it does kind of change into you know kind of a filmed essay um, which, um, you know, I mean, you know, when was this released? What, 71, I think. Um, it was, yeah, it was 70. 75. I was just looking at it. 73. Okay. Oh, yeah. And I don't know. Either way. It's somewhere in there. Early yeah, somewhere in there. Early seventies. Um, you know, Godard was doing this for about, um, a few years before, I mean, 67, with uh, one or two or three things I know about her, um, you know, but that's that's a fiction film that kind of turns into an essay film, 
you know, th- this is a documentary that turns into it. So it's really, it's really not the same thing, even, even though it's, it's similar kind of. Um, but I think this is uh, the chief pleasure of this is like you said, seeing someone like Orson Welles, you know, who is an artistic genius, um, just kind of ruminate on these issues. What are you thinking about? You know, I, I talked about this a little bit with, um, one of my favorite movies from last year, the Jean-Luc Godard, um, the image book, right? I think, I think Godard is a genius and, you know, he's putting out movies now that are like, I don't know, this is what I'm thinking about. Right. And they usually have kind of a, a whispered voiceover or whatever. And, you know, I think, I think being an artist gives you a little bit of insight. I think part of the job of an artist is being almost kind of a prophet. Right. Um, and uh, I think it comes naturally to some artists. And so I, 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 I'm just interested to hear their ruminations. That's why I watched a two hour Instagram live with Godard, just because, you know, just to hear him talk. Right. It's why we listen to Mark Marin or whatever, you know, and so I think part of the charm with this movie, F, F for Fake, like aside from all the deep shit and all the kind of interesting questions he raises in this movie is this is what's on my mind uh, 35 years after Citizen Kane, right? I've, I, I did this amazing work, work of art. I've done a few, all, a few other great works of art throughout the years. I've been exiled. Now all I do is go around to these restaurants and tell stories, some of which are real, some of which aren't. Um, This is what's on my mind. And I think that in and of itself is valuable just as a form, but also the way that he does it with such verve. And I mean, you know, he always said editing is the, that's the key, right? That's the key to cinema is editing. And I mean, this is his most, um, this is his most edited work in a way like the, the, the work of his that has the most editing and he's editing these clips in and there's this dialogue and it's just like, it's almost just like free association. It's like, if you just gave him a camera and we're like, I don't know, tell me what you've been up to or tell me your thoughts. Like I would kill to get a Martin Scorsese movie like this. Like I really, truly would like, I like seeing his, um, that's why his quarantine movie, I think, was so incredible. The little short film, like you've got Scorsese filming himself with his blinds and it looks like prison bars, you know, and he's watching uh, The Wrong Man with Henry Fonda, you know, and you kind of hear his dialogue. I, I would I, I would do anything to get a full length movie like that from him, um, especially towards the end of his career. And I think that's why I think this movie is a masterpiece. I mean, we get a peek into the head of Orson Welles at this stage in his career. And he's, he's alive, right? He's so filled with just life and just ideas and just, Oh, we're going to cut this in here. And then we're going to do this little Picasso sketch. And it's just going to be this and this and this, and he's going back and forth from idea. I mean, this is uh, positively fecund, uh, you know, uh, artist at the, at his age and at his, um, this allegedly decrepit old artist who used to be something and now isn't anymore. And, um, it, it's just a miracle that something like this exists. And I mean, are, are there some parts where I'm like, what the fuck is he talking about? Absolutely. Are there oh, some, yeah, for sure. 
Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, are there some part, like, are there references that I don't get? And like, same with the image book and Godard, you know, like where it's like, are there references that I don't get? Are there, are there passages where I'm like, what the fuck is this? You know, obviously, but like, that's almost beside the point. What we have is a treasure trove or rummaging around the skull of, um, of Orson Welles. And it's similar to rummaging around uh, Xanadu in, in Citizen Kane, you know, here's an object here. Here's, here's a, a flame. Oh, is that a reference to the end of Rosebud? You know, here is this big long shot. Oh, is he think? is he talking about touch of evil here? You know, and he brings up Shakespeare here and it's like rummaging around in his brain. And it's, um, I don't know. I, I just, I just love it so much. It's, um, yeah, it's a great movie. I think. Um, I agree. I, I think that's also a valuable point to bring up. Anytime we can get insight into a great artist mind, like regardless of how you get it, like I, I agree with you on Scorsese. I, I've read almost every book about Scorsese. Like I, I've, I've read, like all the artists that I love. I've read whatever they have because right now that's all we're gonna get, you mm-hmm, know. Mm-hmm. But if we could get something like that, like if we could have had something like this about like Kurosawa or something, it would be, it would be groundbreaking. Yeah. Um, so, so it just, just to have those moments, I agree with you, even the moments where you don't know what's going on, like it doesn't matter. Like, so, so you really get two things from this like documentary film essay, kind of a hybrid you get seeing Orson Welles, you know, the man who changed filmmaking forever, like chilling out, drinking, telling stories, like still sharp, still on yeah, it, still right. just being like, I'm an artist. And then you get these other questions that are kind of like, I don't have an answer. And it right. actually raises a lot of good questions about this medium that I'm obsessed with. So. Right. Right. And, you know, so, you know, I, I think something else, you know, this, this was, this man was playful, right? Like this man was, you know, I, I think he took art very seriously. Right. I mean, obviously he did, you know, his theatrical productions to the war of the worlds to, you know, everything. But this was a man who like Falstaff, he was, he was at play, you know, like Don Quixote or something. He was, he was constantly filled with life, you know, ready to tell a story or hear a story or be dramatic and be the center of attention or ready to make a movie about Kafka, ready to make a cell, you know, this was a man brimming with life, you know, and even though, you know, part of his narrative is about this failed grander, right? What could he have been? And, you know, F for fake is almost like a correction of that, right? He spent his life making movies about failed grander and he spent his life being a, a monument to failed grander. But then F for fake comes along and it's like, no, this is beyond that, right? Yes, I am a monument to failed grandeur. Yes, it's an idea I've been obsessed with for, for my entire career. Yes, I kind of almost prophesied the end of my life by the first fucking movie I made. But like, this is a more joyful portrait of him. This man is, by turns, funny, uh, horny, uh, playful. The man, I mean, he's doing fucking magic tricks at the beginning of the movie to entertain children. Like... He's just he's just so full of life and verve and uh, joie de vivre, you know. It's it's um, I don't know. It's just incredible. When I when I see this, I think you know what. I, that's what I want to be. 
right? And, and if failed grandeur is the thing, is the price you have to pay to be that, then so fucking be it, right? Because that man was alive, right? People people like to knock on him for like doing a Transformers commercial or whatever. And it's like, why not do a fuck or not, not Transformers commercial, the Transformers TV show. And it's like, I was about to say, dude, he was the greatest voice on Transformers, the movie and like 85. Uh, right. It was phenomenal. Right. And, and like people see that as evidence of like, oh, the failed, you know, look what's happened to Orson Welles. And it's like, dude, he's doing a voice of a cartoon. Like, A, how much effort do you think this takes? And B, it's pretty cool. Like, <laughs> and C, it was with Leonard fucking Nimoy and a few other heavy hitters. It was right. a big deal. Right. Like, I don't know, man. I just this is why I like effort. It's almost like a career corrective where it's like, yeah, this guy looks like a monument to failed grandeur. But you know what? He fucking lived. That guy lived. He created and he he had a generous and incredible mind. And I would take I would take Orson Welles and his grand failure over the the brilliant success of a Hitchcock or a Kubrick every day of the week. Right. And I don't even mean like because I like it better as a filmmaker. I mean, like as a life, you know, because Hitchcock died a saint in the movie business. Kubrick died a god in cinema, but neither of them seem to have as much life in them in their fucking little toenail as, or, or, or as much life in them as Orson Welles had in his little toenail. And that is um, I don't know. I just I love that for fake. I love this man. Um, I think he's a genius and, um, and yeah, you know, that's it. Well, I didn't think this episode was going to wrap up with me wanting to go watch the transformers, um, <laughs> but now I just want to go do exactly that. See, so. it's got, it's got me wanting to watch his, have you ever seen that YouTube video of him doing commercials? Oh um, yeah. Yeah. Dude, he's, and he's fucking, and he's getting into it, dude. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, dude, like, obviously it sucks that he had to do commercials, but goddamn if he isn't making the most of it, you know? <laughs> and like, I'm a big believer. Like, I know this is like, this is like a very like broad thing for, for however you want to view it. But I'm a big believer. Like if it, if it moves you, it's art. So like, I remember like as a kid watching the Transformers movie and he fucking dies and turns gray. And yeah. it's like, as like an eight year old trying to process that is like, well, Yep, that's it. Like, fuck it. It all sucks. <laughs> so, uh, dude, he can, he can make, he can do anything. Like that. That's a true artist, man. He gave right. it his all. He wasn't fucking. He wasn't just like turning the mic on, like drinking, just there for a paycheck. I mean, he was fucking. He was the voice of Unicron. I mean, yeah, dude, it's fucking. It's great. Love him, dude. I love Orson Welles, man. I will never stop. Uh... I will never stop worshiping this man. The man knew how to fucking live, you know, whereas like, I mean, and I know this is part of his public persona, but like you look at Hitchcock whenever he does the fucking Alfred Hitchcock presents and he looks like he would rather be anywhere else on the planet than than like introducing those fucking, you know, and here's a story about a man who's murdered. It's like, all right, like, come on, man. Well, I feel like I'm I'm safe and assume and saying this, I feel like it's it's safe to say uh that Orson Welles lives in the shadow of Stanley Kubrick. So um yeah, that's right. it. That that's the show, guys. So yeah. why'd you have to do that, man? I was <laughs> I was feeling so good, you know, just getting just getting sucking off Orson Welles, you know, and uh and you just had to say something like that. Let's let's just end the episode. 
you know, it's uh, it worked. So anyway, it didn't. it didn't work. We didn't. No one liked it. I didn't like it. The audience didn't like it. So I will say this real quick for F for fake. Uh, it is on uh, Criterion, a good a good copy, but also it's on HBO Max, which is cool. So uh, oh, okay. th- this is on a few different platforms. So go watch it if you've never seen it. It's just a little fun hour and a half kind of uh, adventure with Orson Welles. So. Yeah, it's beautifully restored too. It's uh, yeah. Oh it's yeah, great. it's really good copy. Yeah. Um, but before we wrap up, uh, if people want to hear more of us talk about movies or TV shows, uh, where can they go? Jake. Uh, Patreon.com slash silver screen video. We got uh, we got silver screen after dark over there. We got uh, silver small screen video where you can hear us talk about Mad Men. We're uh, just starting season three, so there's time to catch up. Or if you don't feel like catching up, you can just uh, listen to us talk about Mad Men. Um, yeah, it's a good time over there, so check it out if you're interested. Patreon.com slash silver screen video. Absolutely, guys. We're we're uh, working on building a really good community over there, just of uh, people who love movies. Uh, obviously, with the new uh, introduction of small screen video getting in the TV as well. So just uh, just overall, uh, the joy that this art form continues to bring us, even though so many studios and companies are doing their damnedest to destroy it all. So <laughs> uh, anyway, um, do you think we have done Orson Welles part two justice? There will be a part three guys. For those of you wondering, he has a big filmography, so we will be doing more. Uh, but do you feel good about part two? I certainly do. You know, I actually, I was thinking about a volume three and I was thinking what movies, I mean, cause a lot of this shit that he released is just unavailable or just not in like a coherent, um, like a coherent, uh, like vision, you know, like there, there's like, I think there's like 20 minutes of footage from Macbeth or whatever. Um, but I was thinking about Othello would be the next big one. Um, and then um, Criterion has released a couple of essential ones. Mr. Arkadin, which is a really good uh, noir from him. Um, uh, what's the other one? Criterion, the immortal story, uh, which is a fun one that he did for some TV channel. I don't know. It's like an hour long. Uh, the Criterion released that as well. And then um, the one that Netflix released a couple of years ago, The Other Side of the Wind, uh, which was my favorite movie of that year. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll do a foursome on our on our final Orson Welles episode. Who knows? Sky's the limit. You know, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to start living every day like Orson Welles. So. Anyway, All right. Well, I look forward um, to your precipitous weight gain. <laughs> Uh, yeah, nobody, no, no listeners will know. So who cares? Uh, now when my breathing starts getting heavy and I'm, uh, I'm constantly like inebriated, uh, you'll know something's going on. <laughs> um, anyway, guys, uh, we hope you enjoyed this part two of Orson Welles. We certainly did. And, uh, we will have a few more part twos to follow before we go back to the, uh, well of directors to pick from. So anyway, Jacob, do you have anything to add before we wrap it up? No, let's send him home. Okay, guys, thanks for joining us here at the Silver Screen Video, and uh, we will see you next week.